Yeah, my name is Alex Seekins, if uh, we haven't met before. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and I, I've just been, I'm, I'm curious, uh, I'm not super curious, I think it's rhetorical, I know the answer to this question, but I'm wondering if you've ever had a moment uh, where you did something and immediately wished you could undo it, um, but knew you couldn't, right? Maybe it's, it's those words that are like leaving your mouth and like you can see them leaving your mouth and then the moment they're like right here, you're like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> come back, go back where you belong. I didn't, uh-oh, um, or something you've done, you know, and you, and you, as soon as you do it, you just wish, oh man, like your heart sinks because you wish you could undo it, but you realize what you just did, what you just said, it's permanent, right? It can't be undone. It doesn't work that way. Or maybe even something that you did years ago, and all of a sudden you realize how wrong that was. You didn't know it until this moment, but you look back and you realize how wrong that was, and your heart sinks again because you realize it, it's, it's permanent, like maybe I can do something to try to like move forward from here, maybe to try to work on the relationship, you know, repairing a little bit. But at the end of the day, I can't undo it. I think that is a universal human experience. I very much doubt there's a single person in this room or a single person on this planet who hasn't or won't have a moment like that when you realize the permanence of what you've done or what you've said. Um, I had a friend. Um, I told you his story in a bit more detail a couple of years ago. Um, we called him Bapak back then. We'll, we'll call him Bapak for the sake of the story. That, the part of the world he's from, that just kind of means mister or guy or, or dad or whatever. Um, but Bapak was someone that my wife Colleen and I, we met uh, a couple of years ago when we were in Southeast Asia doing anti-trafficking. And Bapak had uh, spent his life, he had built his career uh, making his money as a human trafficker and a pimp. Um, he had made all of his money profiting off of the abuse of women. And when I met Bapak, uh, he was terminally ill. He had been diagnosed with the cancer that ultimately took his life. Um, and as I got to know him and read between the lines a little bit, uh, I realized that he was understandably uh, going through a unique time in his life where he was acutely aware of his mortality. He knew that his time was ticking away. Uh, and he was also going through a unique final chapter of life where he was reckoning with the life that he had lived and the permanence of the things that he had done that were not justifiable. Um, and one day there, were, there was a woman uh, in another brothel in the same red light district where Bapak owned his brothel. And she ran away from, from her pimp because unsurprisingly her pimp wasn't a good guy. Most of them aren't. Um, and, uh, and she ran away from him and she ran to Bapak and Bapak sheltered her and hid her. And a couple days later, uh, her pimp found out that Bapak was, was harboring her. And so the other pimp, he called a, a meeting of, of the association of the council of the pimps cause, and traffickers because they have that. They have like an organization. I know that's like a mind blow, but yeah, it makes sense. They, they're organized too. And so he, he called together the association of all the other traffickers and pimps and he called Bapak in front of them. And he said, Bapak, has a woman that belongs to me and he needs to turn her over. And Bapak stood up in front of all the other traffickers and pimps and he, he said this, he said, I have lived my entire life just about doing this kind of work. And as a result, I am filthy. How am I supposed to get clean? What is there that I can do to clean myself from the life that I've lived? I, I don't know. And the only thing that I can think to do is, is like far smaller than a Hail Mary. Like it's just this, this I, I know that there's no hope of a prayer of a chance that this will do anything. But the only thing that I can think to do is to keep this woman safe until she's ready to go back home to her village. 
And that's what he did. He, he stood in front of, between her and that whole, all the pimps and traffickers and her pimp and, and kept her safe for another couple weeks until she was able to go home to her village. And I think it was in that moment sitting in front of, standing in front of all the other traffickers and pimps that Bapak had a profound realization that he faced a very, very sad but painfully true reality that many people spend their life trying to ignore. Really two realities. I think one, Bapak realized that he was in fact dirty, that he was filthy. I know a lot of people spend a lot of energy pretending they're not. I've noticed lately a lot of people in our culture, they try to say, you know, I, I haven't done anything wrong, and they tend to try to blame things on their nature or their nurture, right? They say, oh, you know, it was like, it's just the way I was born, it's what's in me, like I want to do, how can it be wrong if it's something that I was born wanting to do, desiring to do, if it's just something that I just have, a t- it's me. Or, or they say, you know, it's my nurture, like it was my parents, the way they raised me, you know, I, just, I, I point the finger at them and the things that happened around me, or everything in society around me, it's normal, everyone does this. So how can it be wrong if everybody else is doing it? But I think Bapak realized that that just doesn't really work. Because at the end of the day, Bapak knew something that I think all of us know if we're honest with ourselves: that we have a part of us that is autonomous, that has our own freedom to make decisions. Right? There's a part of you that when your feet are bound and your hands are shackled, there's a part of you that's still not bound up. There's a part of you that still gets to make a decision regardless of what your nature or your nurture pointed you towards. I think many of us would call that a spirit or a soul. And if we have that, if we have a capacity to make a decision, if we are more than a machine, that is nature plus nurture equals every decision I'll ever make in my life. If we're more than that, then we're responsible. And if we're responsible for the wrong things that we've done, then we're dirty. Bapak realized this. The next thing I think Bapak realized is that there is no hope that his works can do anything, that the things that he does, that his good deeds cannot outweigh the bad deeds. I think Bapak realized that if instead of months he had centuries left to live, and if in addition to saving this woman's life, which is good and I'm glad he did it, it was absolutely the right thing to do, if in addition to that he could go and find every woman he had ever abused, every woman he had ever trafficked, every woman he had ever profited off of, and get her free and bring her back to her village safe and sound and give her, uh, give them all millions of dollars in recompense and, and, and pay for a lifetime of the best therapy ever. And then if he could do that for 10 times as many women as he had ever wronged, even if he did all of that, it wouldn't blot out a single stain on his soul because it wouldn't make true what he had done a month ago or a year ago or even last night. And the brokenness that he had made a life of would still be real and he would still be stained and dirty. See, a lot of people, they, they, they have a tendency to think that sin uh, is like a, like a scale that you can balance, right? Like if I do enough good deeds, it'll outweigh the bad deeds. And if, and if my good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then I'm a good person and I get into heaven and everything's fine and I'm great. Or they think of it like, like carbon offset. Maybe you've heard of that, right? There's this thing called carbon offset these days where you have like maybe a wealthy individual or a corporation or maybe even just a normal person who's pretty environmentally conscious. And they're aware of the fact that the life that they're living is putting more carbon in the atmosphere than should be in there, right? And so they wanna, they wanna do some carbon offset. They wanna have carbon neutral footprint, right? And so what they do is they invest in carbon capture, right? They give money to a company that sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and dumps it into the ground uh, so that you know things kind of balance out a little bit. And, and if they can do more of that than they're, you know, guzzling gas or whatever, then, then they're actually having a pretty neutral effect on the environment. And a lot of people think sin is like that. But the thing is, sin is not like carbon in the atmosphere. It's like poison in the water. And dumping a little bit of sugar, 
of your good works and your good deeds into the water that you poisoned doesn't make it any better. Not one bit. And this is what Bapak realized that day in that moment, that, that my good works won't pay for what I've done in one tiny way. Not at all. How do I get clean, he said. And this is what Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. I love the way uh, Ryan summarized the book of Galatians last week. He said, if we were to summarize Galatians, we would put it like this. Paul is saying, don't mess with the gospel. Don't subtract from it. Don't add to it. Don't tweak it. Don't mess with the gospel. And the reason Paul is so passionate about the Bible, or sorry, about the gospel, the reason he's so passionate about the gospel is because the gospel is the answer to Bapak's question, how do I get clean? And what Paul has been encountering is there have been people who've come into the church in Galatia and they've been adding to the gospel. They've been saying, yeah, the gospel and Jesus and faith and all that kind of stuff. But also one of the things that's necessary for you to get your soul clean is for you to avoid doing more bad things and for you to do more good things. And in so doing, you'll start to clean your soul and you'll start to be justified. And Paul is livid because that's not how it works. It's a very common misconception in our universally broken human hearts to think that we can pay for the, for the bad things we do with the good things. And the reason is, I think that, that misconception comes out of desperation because we desperately want to justify ourselves, but we, when we look in the mirror, we realize we're not. And so the closest we can get is, is that works, is, is the doing the good things and trying to avoid the bad things. But Avoiding bad things in the future and doing good things now isn't going to undo the bad that we've done. And so uh, Paul then says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. He said, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul basically says this, your works, they don't work. Not in that way they don't. They have no bearing on, on the state of your soul because you have failed and you have done wrong and you will not pay for your bad, thing by, for your bad deeds or your sin by good deeds or by righteousness, not by your own. What Paul says is faith is the way we're justified. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that can justify us. So if faith is the answer to Bob Pop's question, or at least the beginning of it, if faith is the answer to that, then it's probably pretty important that you and I understand what faith is. And if we're honest and we really think about it, we don't necessarily, many of us, don't necessarily have an intellectually satisfying answer to what faith is. Right? Maybe you come from outside of the church world, you haven't grown up in the church, and you think faith, faith is synonymous with religion. Faith means the same thing. So like, if you came to church today, that means that you have faith. And if you, you, know, you know, don't do bad things, and if you do do good things, then, then that's faith. Uh, but that seems to be exactly what Paul is speaking against here, right? Paul is saying, no, no, works doesn't do it. Doing good things, avoiding bad things, that's not going to make you clean. So that's obviously not the same thing that Paul is talking about. Or maybe you're someone who's grown up in the church and you understand that faith does not equal works and the things that you do are not the things that justify you. But for, for you, the understanding is, well, faith means to believe something. You know, so faith, is, faith in God means that I believe God exists. Faith in Jesus means that I believe he was the son of God and that he died for me. And I would say that's part of it, but if you're honest, you probably also wonder, well, how does, that, how does believing 
that God's real. How does that do anything? And maybe, you know, you've studied the Bible and you've read the verse where it says that even the demons believe. It doesn't do them any good. And so you're left scratching your head thinking, I don't really, I don't understand. But this is important. This is the most important question anybody can ask is the one Bapak asked. How do I get clean? And if faith is the answer, it's probably important that we have some understanding of what faith means. If it's the only way we can get clean. So Paul continues, he says this, he says, uh, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that, Christ was, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so Paul is recalling their, their, their memories. He's reminding them of a moment that was really significant for the Galatian church, if we're, if we're reading between the lines. A moment when their relationship with God began. A moment when they were justified. He said, did that moment come when you finally did enough good works that it outweighed the bad works and the Holy Spirit came and said, oh, wow, now that you've done that one last final good work and it's more than the bad that you've done, great. We can begin relationship together. You've, you've justified yourself. You've cleaned your soul. Now we can be close together. He said, Paul says, did it, did it start like that or did it start when you heard the gospel and you responded to Jesus with faith? And obviously Paul's being rhetorical. He knows and they know that it started when they heard the gospel and they responded with faith. Paul again here is saying your works don't work. I like to put it this way. I think what he's saying is, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus never says, get clean and come to me. He says, come to me and I'll get you clean. And Paul continues, he says this, he said, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham, and Paul here quotes uh, Genesis chapter 15, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul here is he's quoting out of Genesis 15 when Abraham's relationship, when his covenant with the Lord began. And it says in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as faith. And there's that word again, belief and faith. And it's interesting, actually, the word, uh, all of the words here for belief and faith in, in the Greek are the same word. Um, I'm not going to dive into the Greek today. I'll spare you of that. I actually talked about this word, word a little, about a year or so ago when we did our series on Revelations. And it's a powerful word, and there's a lot to be said about the Greek word for faith. Um, but I want to actually even just start with, with the English word for belief, because I think that we're taking it in the wrong, I think we're taking the wrong connotation, the wrong meaning of the word believe when we read that Abraham believed God, that he believed in God. See, when I say the phrase in English, I believe in, there are two very different things that I can mean by that. One, I can say it as though I say, I believe in Bigfoot. Right? When I say, I believe in Bigfoot, I'm saying, I believe in something that may or may not exist. When I say, I when I say to my best friend, though, I believe in you, I mean something wildly different, right? I believe in Bigfoot means Bigfoot may or may not exist, but I believe he does, and you might not believe he does, and I haven't necessarily seen it, but I believe that Bigfoot exists. By the way, Bigfoot not so sure about Megalodon? Oh, we'll see. I'm pretty sure Megalodon's still out there, you know? Um, my wife has a Megalodon fossil tooth. It's so cool. It's like that big. It's enormous. Um, 
But when I say to my best friend, I believe in you, I'm not saying I believe you exist. That would be a stupid thing to say when I say I believe in you because I'm saying the word you, so obviously you exist and obviously I'm not questioning whether or not you exist. I'm presupposing your reality and existence. In the same way when Abraham was talking to God, Abraham was just talking to God. It would be silly to say that Abraham believed someone he was just talking with existed. Self-evident by the conversation that they're having that God existed. Did Abraham believe God existed? Yes. Was that a part of what's meant when we say that Abraham believed God? Yes. Was that really what's being you know, clarified here in, in this passage in Genesis 15 or in Galatians? I don't think so. When I say to my best friend, I believe in you, it is a, it is a profound, a simple, and yet pr- profound expression of intimacy, isn't it? I am saying, I believe in you. I am binding myself up with you. I'm saying that I am confident in your goodness. I'm saying that I trust you. I'm saying that these circumstances that are coming ahead, they're uncertain, but I'm feeling quite certain about them because I believe in you, because I believe you are good and capable. And I am putting my seal of approval on you. Right? If you fail after me having said to people, I believe in that guy, well, that reflects poorly on me. If you succeed, well, that reflects well on me. When we believe in God, we're tying ourselves to him in a significant way. We're expressing our trust in him. And this word gets even more beautiful when we go to the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 15. Right, the Hebrew word for Genesis uh, for believe in Genesis chapter 15 when it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, um, that's the Hebrew word aman. Hebrew is an interesting language. It predates the, in, uh, the invention of vowels. Um, so the, word, the Hebrew word aman is actually spelled exactly the same as another ancient Hebrew word that you and I are much more familiar with, uh, the Hebrew word amen. Uh, You've probably been told amen means like let it be, and that's true, that's one of the connotations of it, but more literally, the Hebrew word amen means faithful, which I love that, that when we're praying, we just, we're saying faithful. It's as though like we're saying two things at the same time with that one simple, powerful, weighty, and yet ambiguous word, right? Like at the same time, we're saying at the end of this prayer, God is faithful. And at the end of this prayer, maybe we're reminding ourselves to be faithful, Because we know that when we pray, sometimes we see God do exactly what we're asking for in exactly the timing, exactly the way we want. But so many times his timing and his ways are different from what we're asking for. And we wait for years and years and years to see the faithfulness of God. And maybe when we're saying amen, we're also reminding ourselves, be faithful. Because God is faithful. And this word aman, again, it's spelled exactly the same way as, as the word amen, and it's connected to the word amen, very much so. The word aman means faithful, it means committed, it means steadfast, it means unwavering and steady. It is the same word for like a pillar, specifically like the pillars that hold up a door. And I love that picture there, right? Because the door is the only part of the house other than maybe like the window, right, that moves it all. It's the only unstable kind of shifty thing. But, the, but, the, but because of that, the pillars of the door are some of the most stable points in the house. They don't move. And you see it especially as the, as the door moves and the pillars that hold the door up don't. But even more beautifully than that, the word aman is the same exact word for a foster or an adoptive father or mother. The word Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness is the word for an adoptive parent. Like, like it's a word for, for a woman who sees a baby that did not come from her own body. 
And that baby is abandoned and alone and she picks that baby up and she cares for it and she feeds it and she nurses it and she feeds that baby, giving it sustenance from her own body and the two of them are intimately intertwined. And when she does this, she is committing to this child and to its life and she is essentially recognizing, she's entering into a commitment to this child that says, this baby will one day bury me. I recently... um, had a baby sitting back there. Silas Liam Seekins, he's pretty cool. Um, and I'm sorry to rub it in all of your faces, but he's sleeping through the night and he came out that way. Um, so no, we're not tired. Um, I'm sure we will pay for it with babies two or three. Um, but baby one right now, we're, we're just ever, like we're losing like 10 minutes of sleep a night. He's pretty awesome. He's pretty easy. Um, but because of having had our first kid, I've just kind of had an experience that I've only witnessed from the outside before, that I've only had people explain to me before. Um, this moment, right, when, when your child shows up and all of a sudden love happens to you, right? And there's this buildup, you know, in the months leading up to where you're like, kind of, I'm like, oh, I, I think I love this little thing in my wife's tummy, but I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure I will, but it's there. He's wiggling around. I can't really see it. She can feel it a lot more than I can. And then he comes out and there is this wave of love that smashes into you. And it's been, my experience has been it's exponentially increased in, you know, in the days and weeks that have followed. And I'm sure it will continue to do so. But what was so unique in this moment, in my experience, and I've heard many other parents say this, is it didn't feel like I chose to love him. Not that I would have not chosen to love him, but it felt like love happened to me. Like it just smacked me in the head. Like all of a sudden I love this little tiny baby for apparently no good reason other than the fact that he's cute, but I don't even know why he's cute. I mean, he's cute. But it just, it just happened to me, and I didn't have a choice in the matter. And, and I suppose I could choose not to love him, but that would take a lot of work, and I don't even know if I could do that. There's this other similar experience that I've to date only wit- also only witnessed from the outside. Maybe one day we'll experience this. I don't know. Um, but it's the moment when a father or mother, when they adopt a kid, um, I've seen this from the outside. I've paid a lot of attention to it. I've done some work with foster care stuff. And, and it, it's a really beautiful moment. And I, and I called up a friend of mine who's adopted before to kind of pick his brain a little bit and make sure that, you know, my perspective from the outside more or less, you know, was what it actually kind of is like. And, and he confirmed my suspicions. He said, you know, when you, when you adopt a kid, it is, it is a different process, the love, uh, than, than when you have a natural kid. And, and at the same time, the love is just as powerful, and it is the exact same love. He said, but when you have a natural-born child, he said the exact same word I just used. He said, love just kind of happens to you. He said, when you adopt a kid, you first choose the love. And then the love happens to you, and then you receive the supernaturally natural love. But it starts with that choice. And it's, and it's a much more intentional thing. And it is very clear to me, all the people I know who've adopted, that the love that they have for their adopted children is 100% the same as my love for Silas. In fact, that friend that I spent, he, he doesn't even like saying adopted kid. That like feels wrong to him. Even though he chose it and even though it's technically true, he just says, my child. And he feels a little funny anytime someone says, refers to his kid in any way other than my child. And, and that right there is what Abraham did. 
That is the believe that Abraham did that was counted to him as righteousness. He adopted God. He tied himself to God. He was faithful to God. He chose God. He was steadfast in the Lord. He amoned God. And God adopted him. And I know Paul is dialed into this because if you read a few verses down in the book of Galatians, Paul starts talking about God having adopted us. He's very much thinking about this concept of Ammon, of adoption. So, uh, so how, how does faith justify us? It ties us to God. Faith is not just saying, yeah, I think God is real. And, and I think Jesus is his son. Faith is saying, I'm gonna adopt you. Faith is saying, I'm going to go to the grave with you as my God. And this is the gospel. This is the answer to Bapak's question, how am I supposed to get clean? You and I, are, we're, we're dirty. Bapak's situation may feel like an extreme example, but I promise you, you and I are in the exact same boat as him. We are filthy and we are dirty. And we cannot pay for a single one of our sins, a single one of the mistakes or the failures, whether intentional or out of ignorance. We cannot pay for any of them by doing good works. It does not work that way. That is a lie that we tell ourselves to feel better because we know that there's nothing we can do about it. And just like Bapak's clock was ticking, so is ours. Every single one of us Death is coming for you. And we are condemned to hell. I know we don't like to say that because we feel like, oh, that's judgy. But the truth is, as weird as it might say, sound to say, hell is actually really good news. As far as I can tell from at least two different angles. One, hell is good news because it's justice. And we need justice. It is important. It is vital. Now, justice might sound unpleasant when you're the, the perpetrator, right? When you're the one who's, who's wrong. You, oh, that's unfair. Just have some mercy. You know, just, just let it go, you know? But when, but when you're the victim or when worse, your loved ones are the victims, justice is a big deal. And a lack of justice, we're not okay with that. In the summer of 2020, there was an act that so many of us watched online that seemed to be a profound act of in injustice, and our nation boiled over out of rage because we were afraid justice might not be done. We all understand the need for justice, and God would not be just if there was not hell. The other angle at which hell is, is actually really good news is because God honors our autonomy. And, and, and hell is the exact same thing as separation from God in the same way that darkness is the same thing as separation from light. They're identical. They're not similar. They are the exact same thing with a different label on it. And God is not interested in forcing himself on anyone. So those of us who say, you know what, God, I don't want you. I don't want to be tied to you in Amman, in faith, in love. I don't want to live with you. God says, I could never bring myself to force myself on you for a moment, much less eternity. So if you want separation from me, that's, oh, that breaks my heart. But okay, here, here's hell. Here's a space where you can be separate from me. And justice, as well as your desire, will be satisfied in the same spot. Because God honors us, even in our sin, even in our rejection of him. He honors that. And so you and I, were dirty. There's nothing we can do about it. And we are condemned to hell, and the clock is ticking. 
And the only one who is pure enough and valuable enough to pay the price for our sin is God himself. The only one who can die in our place is someone who doesn't deserve to die himself. And so because of that, God came and he was born and we call him Jesus. And he lived a life, perfect, sinless, spotless, something none of us have ever been able to do. And then he died and he rose again back to life and he ascended to be united back with the Father. And and here's the thing, here's what God promises. He says, those of you who have faith, who have a man, those of you who believe in me the way you might believe in a best friend, those of you who tie yourselves to me, who hear my invitation to be adopted and you adopt me back. You are tied to me in my death and my resurrection. You're tied to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And when we're tied to Jesus in his death, our sin and our condemnation and the death that we deserve is tied to him too. And it goes down and dies with him when he was crucified. And it's gone from us. As far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. Our death is dead when he died. And then in his resurrection, you and I who've chosen to bind ourselves to him, we are bound to him in his resurrection. And he comes back to life and with him and with that life brings us a promise of resurrection. The Bible doesn't tell us that that we're like gonna be disembodied spirits up in the clouds with wings and turn into angels. That is not actually the promise of the Bible. The Bible promises a resurrection of the dead. The Bible promises is that Jesus is gonna come back And that when he comes back, he's going to say, behold, I make all things new. The Bible tells us that we are going to come back and we are going to live in a new earth, in a new heaven, in a new Jerusalem. That we are going to live, we are going to laugh, we are going to eat, we are going to dance, we are going to sing, we will worship, we will love, and we will live in all eternity with him, justified, cleansed, made whole, made new that he will wipe away every tear in that space. That is the promise of the gospel. And that all we can do and all we need to do is to choose him, is to bind ourselves to him, is to believe in God as Abraham did. Not just to believe that he exists, that, that might be a piece of the puzzle, but to tie ourselves to him, to adopt him, This is our hope. This is the gospel. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we have now. And the gospel is true and it's real and it has implications not just for eternity. It has implications for today and tomorrow and for this life that we live as we wait for him to return. Because little bits of eternity spill out into here and now. And the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said, is here. It's among us. It's at hand. We're not just waiting for the moment we die. We're waiting and watching for the kingdom of heaven here among us at hand. And we're going to take communion today in a moment, a little differently than normal, kind of at your own pace. But this right here is exactly what we're talking about. If you're a believer, I would invite you to take this at your own pace as we go on for the last little bit of service here. But this is is a symbol of us saying, I'm tied to you, Jesus, in your death and in your resurrection. This is us saying, yes, Jesus, I accept it. I accept that you died for me and I want to be bound up in you. And we do this often to remind ourselves that we are tied to him, that we are faithful to him, that we have Amman, that we have adopted him because he adopted us first. 
And, 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 I, and I want to invite you to just take this at your own pace whenever you want to in your seat or up at the front. But when you take this this morning, I want, I want to encourage you to just simply say to Jesus, I tie myself to you in your death and in your resurrection. And we've left a little more time at the back end of service than we normally do today um, because we're not anywhere near done, really. Because I want to leave space for us to respond to this. I want to leave space for us to tie ourselves to Jesus this morning. And so when when we get going with worship again, here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. I want to invite you. I want to ask you, if you want to tie yourself to Jesus, to come up to the front to get on your knees and to tie yourself to Jesus. I want to invite the, the prayer team to come on up now, if you guys would. And you can just get on your knees between you and Jesus alone and, and, and commit to tying yourself to him. Or, or you can speak to someone. You can have someone pray with you if you feel like that would help. And the reason I want to encourage you to come up to the front is not works. Walking up to the front of this church won't save you any more than any other good deed will but because there's something meaningful about responding in our body as well as our soul and our spirit and all that we are to Jesus. And if you're willing to tie yourself to Jesus, then you're at least willing to walk up to the front and to commit to him in that way. But if you don't, that doesn't negate it. It doesn't make it not real if you commit to Jesus in your chair or another day. This isn't the only moment in your life you can commit to him, but at the same time, why would you waste any moment? Why would you waste any time gaining access to the faith and the grace that saves us, that heals us. If you've ever wondered at Bopak's question, how am I supposed to get clean? Well, this is the answer. You tie yourself to him. So maybe you're someone who's never made this decision. Maybe you're someone who's never bound yourself to Jesus. This is the first time you've ever heard that. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to come up to the front and to bow before the Lord to say, Jesus, I don't get it. I don't know. I just want to tie myself to you. And I know there's a lot I don't understand and that's okay. Or maybe you're someone who, who you know, you, you thought you've been a Christian. You've been coming to church for a while, but you thought it just was enough that you believed that God existed. And just now you're realizing, no, I have to tie myself to him. That's the faith. If that's you, I want to encourage you, come to the front and bow before the Lord or pray with someone and just commit to tie yourself to Jesus today. Or maybe you're someone who who gets this, who understands this, that there was a time in your life when you were tightly bound to Jesus. And one morning you woke up and you realized, I don't know that I'm so tightly bound to Jesus anymore. It seems like the things that I had used to tie myself to him, they just, like I cut those cords or they fell off and I didn't even realize it one day. If that's you, come to the front and tie yourself to Jesus. Or maybe you're someone who knows you're tied to Jesus. You haven't stopped being tied to Jesus. But this is just a moment where you just want to remind your soul and you want to remind Jesus that, Jesus, I am tied to you. I have faith in you. Jesus, I believe in you, not just that you exist, but that you're good and that I trust you. And Jesus, you've adopted me and I want to adopt you back. And so as we sing and as we worship, don't miss this moment. Don't miss this opportunity. And if you do, you haven't missed it. You have the same moment, every moment of your life to tie yourself to Jesus. He is faithful even if we're shaky in our faith. But I want to invite you now to come up to the front, to kneel before the Lord or to pray with someone and to tie yourself to Jesus in faith and in a mind.